We've all gotten postcards, right? Okay. The, the simplest thing, it's just a, a little postcard, a little note on the back. It costs now a penny less to send one of these things, uh, unless you're choosing airmail. Sweet! That was a not, did that hit anyone? I'm sorry. Try it again. I was told I can't throw things anymore, but this is okay, isn't it? It's not? Do you see that? He was like riding with Brad Thornberry. He went right between a Dirk's head and another Dirk's head and then cut in front of it. And it's just, okay, so the whole idea between a postcard is that you have this opportunity to, is this fun? It's so much fun at church. How can people say church is not fun? Isn't it? Oh, do you see that? How it went like that? Are you, are you okay? Okay, sounds great. Did I try another one? Try another one. It won't go in the same plot three times in a row. There's one like that. At any rate, okay, so the idea behind a postcard, right, is someone goes to a faraway place, okay, and they send you a postcard. But actually, you don't receive the postcard until they've come back, okay? So that's part of the thing that happens. And really, if truth be told, there's some sort of sentiment expressed by the person sending the postcard that's along the lines of, look at me, I look to get to be on vacation. And there's just a little bit of a tiny dig. I'm here. Wish you were here. They can be humorous. They can be serious. But almost always, they have some sort of picture that gives you the briefest of brief views. Perhaps a signature icon of the area. The postcards that we threw out this morning were from the Nisswa Brainerd Lakes area. And so you saw the Gull Lake Narrows, or you saw Gull and Round Lake, or you saw Nisswa, the town itself, or you saw a mixed bag, a couple northerns, a walleye, etc., etc., etc. A signature icon of the area. It's not meant to be complete. Okay? A postcard isn't meant to describe everything about a given area. It's just a snapshot. It's the briefest of brief views. It's meant to want you to smile, to make you want to smile or laugh, or perhaps stir your wanderlust. A postcard. It's designed to make you want to be there. Page 1030 is where we find ourselves today. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, page 1030. We'll be spending a couple weeks in this chapter, so get used to turning to page 1030. Now, you're going to want to be ready because at an appropriate time, we're going to all read together, okay? And you'll be able to figure that out once I get there, but not right now. Good. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, 
are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will, they existed and were created. What is heaven like? Well, John describes it in postcard fashion, okay? This isn't meant to be a total description of what heaven is like. This is like getting a postcard in the mail, a sort of, hey, here's where I'm at, wish you were here, hope someday you'll make it sort of idea. John looks into a door. N.T. Wright argues that when he was younger, he thought of this passage and thought that that door was someplace far, far away, right? Like, like John was looking up into a dark sky at night and there was a star and the star turned into a door and there was light and he was drawn to the light. And then N.T. Wright argues that as he matured and understood the scriptures better, studied, understood what was going on, that he didn't view it that way anymore. In fact, the New Testament would argue from the way that the writers, especially in Acts and here in Revelation, argue for the heavens. The heavens aren't a place that's far, far away. The heavens are right here. The heavens are all around us. In fact, the door that opened for John could have been a door that's just right here. Boop! Door open, and inside, he sees this postcard-like image of what heaven is like. The text describes that he's instantly in the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, and we get a reference to that in just a few verses, right? The seven torches, the seven bits of fire are the Holy Spirit, seven, a number of perfection. There's a throne, right? He sees a throne inside the door and one on the throne, and we could just as easily capitalize the O on one because this is the Father, Now, the word throne in the book of Revelation is incredibly important. There's only five chapters in the entire book that don't mention the throne. Of the balance of the rest, two use the word throne in a negative connotation, a throne of evil, the dominion of darkness. But overwhelmingly, the idea of God being on his throne is something that is pervasive throughout this book. The one seated on the throne, this is what this person looks like. Jasper and Carnelian. Now, some would be arguing that, okay, Old Testament scholarship, the, the, uh, the chief priest on his breastplate would have a top stone that was Jasper and a bottom stone that was Carnelian, or vice versa. I can't remember which was which. And so is there some hint of that going on here? Perhaps. And then this picture of a rainbow-flavored emerald. Some hint to post-flood? Perhaps. But what we do know for certain is that the appearance is like a gemstone radiating light at the center of this picture. Around that throne are 24 thrones with 24 elders. 24 thrones, 24 elders. Who are these elders? Were they the 24 orders of priests that David designated? Perhaps the 24 Levitical gatekeepers? Maybe 
24 worship leaders? Maybe. Maybe it's a 12 plus 12 reality. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. Challenge with that one is that there was actually more than 12 tribes of Israel. There were more like 13. And if you only go 12 apostles, I guess we say sorry to Paul. Certainly, we can have a picture that these 24 are followers of God. In our parlance today, the church, the true church. And then around the throne, there is flashes of lightning and rolls of thunder and seven torches of fire, the seven spirits, the Holy Spirit, being viewed as more complex and more wonderful than we can possibly think or imagine the Holy Spirit at work in ways that are not limited by our theology or our experience, the Holy Spirit blowing free. And the white garments on the elders, meaning what? They've been washed. White, fidelity to God. The promise of the white robe is offered to those who persevere. And the golden crowns, well, you only get a crown when you've earned one. It's a gift, in this case, from Jesus to those who, again, overcome. And then we have this sea that is glass, that is crystal. Now, there's some indication that in Solomon's temple, there was a big, huge bronze reflecting pool, okay? Think like the Washington Monument, Washington, D.C., where there's a big, huge reflecting pool. And this is a reflecting pool that is, it's like crystal, now, you have to understand that in the Old Testament and in the book of Revelation, water and the sea is a scene of chaos. It's the place where bad things happen to good ships. It's a place where creatures out of the deep can rise up and disintegrate things on the surface and then withdraw never to be seen again. It's a place of confusion. And here, that sea is, is perfectly calm perfectly still, with a ski course on it. No fishing, just a slalom course. Actually, that's not in the Bible, so <laughs> maybe in my ring. The confusion is gone. There is no more worry that the waters will be disturbed and those on the surface will be eaten alive. It's calm. It's still. It's perfectly reflecting the glory of the one on the throne. And then we have these four living creatures that have eyes that see, that the eyes that cover the entire body. Did you know that, that the box jellyfish has 24 eyes? It's the craziest thing. Box jellyfish, 24 eyes. Did you know that a bay scallop, okay, bay scallops, excellent. Just don't overcook them. Gently fry them, a little bit of butter, salt and pepper, maybe olive oil instead of the butter if you want to go. A bay scallop has over 100 brilliant blue eyes at the edge of its shell. Th these creatures are, are creatures that are full of eyes. One has the face of a lion, mighty, strength, sure. One has the face of an ox, the ability to pull, inherent strength, without question. The one has a face of a man, wisdom and, and intelligence, perhaps. One is an eagle, fast and flight and fleet. Yes, certainly. Four living creatures, points of a compass, their created order. This is how the church has historically understood these four images, representative of all living creatures, 
And what are they doing? They're testifying to who God is. They're testifying that God is worthy of worship. We might see a tree, or we might see a living creature, or we might see an eagle on flight, and we might think, wow, what an intriguing thing to view. But in reality, the purpose for those things is to worship, to testify to, to enhance the reputation of God. In fact, I would argue if we were to see an eagle on flight this afternoon, we should reflect to ourselves. An animate object that is pointing us to God. Six wings, full of eyes. Now the imagery is crazy, right? And probably it's best to understand these things as symbolic. Okay? Although, if you get to heaven and you actually see these things, don't be freaked out. You're in the right spot. Okay? You're in the right spot. But probably these things are symbolic. And they represent the one on the throne, God. Yahweh. They represent the church. They represent the Holy Spirit in all of his ability and power. They represent peace. They represent the created order, praising the creator. And the eyes, an omniscient God, seeing all, being surprised by absolutely nothing. It's a postcard. It's not the totality of what heaven is or will be. But it's a picture that gives us a clue. And if John were able to write today, he would say, this is what it's like. Wish you were here. Let's get to what it sounds like. Verse 5. The band is made up of flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. So the band is basically a thunderstorm, right? And the lead singers, okay, the lead singers are these four living creatures, and they are singing over the top of of the background music of a thunderstorm. They are singing these words that are able to be heard, holy, 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 holy. And I get the sense in reading the text with all the exclamation points that it's really loud, Now, I used to like louder music than I currently do, but I still like music to be pretty loud. The band, thunder and lightning, and the lead singers over that, tonsils and ears. I think, I think they're singing loudly enough that little bits of tonsil are coming out of their mouth. Okay, I imagine bits of tonsil and maybe even lung material are being expelled from their mouth. Okay, they are absolutely just going at it and just push. Okay, and their ears, it's so loud, so intense that their ears are bleeding. And so we might challenge ourselves that this is not only a big song, but an invitation that if bits of tonsil are not flying out of our mouth, we're not singing hard enough. And if our ears are not bleeding, it's not loud enough. Because it's a loud, big sound praising the God of the universe, and you can't miss that. And these living, eternal creatures in eternal song, and John can't look away. It is absolutely overwhelming. And the first song that they sing, the one that we'll focus on today, is in verse 8. You know the words, holy, holy, holy. It's why they are singing. It's why John is shown this vision. This is what John has visually observed while he is in the Spirit. 
the creatures never cease to sing. And it's the first of the songs in Revelation to John. Holy, holy, holy. Now, it's difficult to say in describing God that there is one attribute that is more significant than the other attributes. Probably the best way to look at God is like a multifaceted diamond. And depending upon which way you turn the stone, you get a different aspect, a different attribute of who God is reflecting back at you. And so you might be drawn to the love of God. You might be drawn to the grace of God. You might be drawn to the judgment of God. You might be drawn to the fear of God. But say that we were bold enough to make a statement that one attribute of God is so distinctive that it should be at the top of the list, it might be this one. The holiness of God. Repeated three times. The anthem of the triune God is what Robert Coleman argues for, reflecting Yahweh the Father, Yahweh the Son, Yahweh the Spirit, without question. Repeating, holy, 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 to give a a sense of emphasis, a sense of uh, heightened awareness, so that you would say something is really, really, really good. I mean, that was amazing. You would say something is holy, 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 holy. It amplifies. It creates intentionality in the mind of the individual who's uttering it, and it creates a sense of urgency in the person who is hearing it. If we were to say that the holiness of God should be at the top of the list, we would be in good company in the history of theologians and individuals who have studied these scriptures. Perhaps you could make the argument, the holiness of God, the separateness of God, the uniqueness of God is the attribute of God that belongs at the top. And this is the attribute that starts off this eternal chorus of worship. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God is holy. God is omnipotent. We say this word, omnipotent, and it's all-powerful, right? And there's something that we would say theologically, yes, that's true. God is omnipotent. No one would disagree with that. The challenge is sometimes we have these experiences in life that are less than or seem to be less than God's omnipotence in play. We have made choices, or others have made choices, or worse yet, others have made choices upon us that would seem to not reflect the omnipotence of God. And we've wondered, why in the world, if God is all-powerful, why he didn't stop that, or stop that person from doing that to me, or stop me from doing that? And we've tried to explore this notion here at Timberwood Church, the idea of a battlefield, the idea on a battlefield, forces of good, forces of evil, forces of good, forces of evil, both sides take casualties, but ultimately the force of good wins. We've talked about that idea. Another thing that I think might be helpful is the game of life. Ever play the game of life? Do you ever cheat at the game of life? I always used to cheat at the game of life, okay? So you spin the little dial. If you didn't get the right number, I'd spin again. I would play the first 10 squares as many times as it took to make sure that I got the highest degree possible, okay? And then in the games where you could bet on the stock market, if I didn't win in the stock market, I'd spin again because you can cheat at the game of life. It's a board game. You can cheat. You can cheat within the square that's sitting on the kitchen table. 
You might get brothers or sisters angry at you, especially if they're younger than you. But what are they going to do? For goodness sakes, it's a game and you're cheating in the midst of the square. Sometimes I think life is like that. Sometimes I think God allows humans to play the game called life. And within the game, God understands that some people will play fair and some people will cheat. But God says you don't get to exceed the bounds of the game. You don't get to operate outside of the square. The Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come, the eternally existent creator of the universe. That is who they are worshiping. That is who they are praising. One entity praises something that is better than itself. We understand this. The magazine of Sports Illustrated is dedicated weekly to giving you another person that you can praise. They put him on the cover. A couple weeks ago, it was Muhammad Ali, greatest boxer ever. Some would disagree. At any rate, I don't care. We get it, right? You praise something that is greater than you. You praise something that is more capable than you. You praise something that is more beautiful than you. You praise something that is greater than ourselves. And that's where these living creatures are at in their lives. They are praising the God of the universe. But more than praise, there is a center aspect of this. The throne is located in the midst of it all. The worship of God, the worship directed to God, with the rest of all of creation rotating about God. And clearly, this book, more than anything else, it's not a book about the end of the world. And it's certainly not a book about when the rapture happens. It's not a book about you or me. It's a book about God. And it's a book that describes God at the center of everything. And all of human existence revolving around that reality. There is so much at stake in this text. Because God says, in the game of life, here is where I'm at. If you want to play, knock yourself out. But here is where I exist. And we're given a picture into that reality through this incredible set of verses. Creatures worshiping the Creator. So what about us? What is our worship like? What is your worship like? What is my worship like? Individually, when I'm at home, corporately when we're together. Have you ever had the thought sitting here on a Sunday morning? Well, probably not here, but maybe at some other church, okay? Where you're like, ah, music. I don't know that I like the music. Yeah, country Western, seriously? What are you playing country Western music for? Or maybe you've heard the face story, right? You know, and you've, some of you are like, woohoo, love the face stories, you know? And other people are like, ah, I'm not quite sure I like the face stories, you know? Or the preaching, that's always great, right? Woohoo! Let's hear an amen. Awesome preaching. But some people are like, yeah, don't throw stuff. Don't, don't, you don't, don't. Stop. Stop. 
And again, maybe those feelings don't happen here, but maybe they've happened in places where you've been, where the experience has been something less than for you or for me. If I'm honest, I would say, yeah, I've had those feelings. At Timberwood Church, we say we worship an audience of one. We're here to coach, we're here to participate, we're here to engage. But it's not about me. And it's not about you. The person that we worship is God. And so if you don't like the preaching, ouch. If you don't like the face stories or you don't like the music, a part of me would be sad, but a part of me would be it's, it's, it's not about you. It's about God. The challenge that any of us have in life is moving from a perspective where I exist in the center and life is about me to a place where God is at the center and life is about God. And, and if we don't get that, then we don't get anything else. If we don't get that movement, yeah, then be afraid about what happens when you die and when the rapture may or may not happen and when in the end of the world is going to come around. Be very afraid. But if you get the perspective that Revelation chapters 4 and 5 is driving at, God at center, if we live that ways, we don't have to worry about the rest of the book. Not that we're not interested, but there doesn't have to be any fear because with God at center of our lives... That's exactly where he wants to be. That's exactly where he needs to be. And please understand, we can only cheat at the game for so long. John gives us, in Revelation chapter 4, a postcard. A postcard that probably a half a dozen people in the history of humankind have had the opportunity to view and report back to the rest of humankind on. And he invites us to an attitude of worship that is solely about God, with God at center. Worshiping God for who he is. Holy, holy, holy. Please pray with me. We would be remiss if we did not say Happy Father's Day. So to the Father of the universe, we say Happy Father's Day. We tell you, O oh great God, that we are grateful that you have created us we are grateful for all that you have created and how it testifies to who you are. Father, allow us, allow our voices to join with all of creation, praising you, worshiping you, placing you at the center of our lives, of our existence. Father, thank you for this time. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The ushers will come forward and gather the morning offerings.